Hello and welcome. This is the BIPOC Diaries. BIPOC. Often used these days incorrectly is a term that I first popularized over a decade ago in the sense that I created the term, shared the term, told every single person I knew about the term, and then watched it walk away with no credit, which is pretty common within African-American social justice movements, that the people who uh, create things, who sew flags, who make things, who are the generators of terms, content, and ideas are often erased from those ideas that are then lifted by people to be used incorrectly. Um, and so I thought, what an interesting time for me in my life as Faith Cheltenham, also Faith Atwater Cheltenham, which is kind of my full legal name, um, and who I am from birth to today um, as X. The name, um, my closest and dearest, they're allowed to call me, otherwise it's not for you. Um, how can I, you know, conversate a little bit more about what these, what the term was intended to be, how it came to be, and then also look at kind of what's going on um, in race and, and politics in America at this moment from my perspective, right, which is as a Christian, um, an independent thinker, I currently identify as a conservative. In the past, I've been a hardcore liberal. Um, I could switch again, right? I like to say to people, I'm so left, I'm right. As in, I'm correct, <laughs> right? Um, and it, it can be hard for folks to understand, but at the same time, um, my perspective is broadly different in the sense that um, since 1980, when I was born, I have remembered everything that I've experienced. And there's just a couple hundred thousand people in the world who share that experience, which can be fairly lonely, particularly since many of those people who live with highly superior autobiographical memory are not black. Hmm. And particularly for myself as well, because I'm a black person who was raised in a city called San Luis Obispo, one of the whitest towns on earth, most likely. So um, I came to my blackness extremely authentically and um, have a million black cards <laughs> anytime I can spread out. And, you know, somebody asks, like, well, you know, how can I know that you know what you're talking about? Um, I've been talking about race, gender, sexuality, and politics for over 20 years and um, have been an award-winning journalist and writer since 1995 when I was a teenager and won an honorable mention in the USA Today National Writing Contest on, of course, racism in America. Um, and, you know, even have appeared in a reality show, Black White, once produced by Ice Cube, 2006 Emmy winner uh, for Best Makeup, about two families who treated races, one white and one black, and, and attempted to experience what it is to be a black person to be a white person, to engage in race conversations many years ago, right? 2006, several years ago. And, um, you know, as things progressed, things would happen. You know, somebody would get in touch and be like, listen, we're trying to start this thing. And, you know, we we saying Black Lives Matter. I'd be like, okay, well, let me help you get together your website, help you build some chapters. Uh, and then, was, oh, well, we, this is different than we had envisioned. And, um, you know, why I do still support many of the tenets and thoughts of, of BLM as uh, it is popularly known these days, 
my experience with race precedes those movements, right? Because I am in my 40s. Um, and so a lot of what I've seen in the last five years, especially, really discounts what has happened before, which is to me a very common thing. I watch normals, as I call you all who don't share my memory talents. Um, I see that happen all the time. We're kind of consistent, forgetting of who we have been, who we will be, who we could become in favor of the new fix, in favor of the new idea, in favor of this is going to work, and then it doesn't, right? Um, and I often see this a lot right now in entertainment, where there's so many new pieces of content that are coming out in film and television, streaming, web series, um, targeting black experience, discussing black experience, and they're often unsuccessful, um, unless they are white uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, unless black people are dressed up as white people, it doesn't seem to work, right? So we got Bridgerton out here telling the quote-unquote story of a black queen who I would articulate did everything she could to be disassociated with her black heritage during her lifetime, as did every single person in her family and those who came after her. We have uh, many different types of content pieces that are out there that are focused on black experiences that do not reflect everyday black life, right? Um, and I, I find that very interesting, especially um, as there has been this movement of equality and inclusion and diversity, that we get less than we ever had before. And I, I, I intend to have these conversations to, to refute that, to say this is, this is not correct. We should be getting more, right? We should have uh, real conversations that articulate the positivity, optimism, and success of black experience. We should be having more conversations that articulate the positivity, optimism, and success of indigenous and native cultures, right? Um, I don't need to say we're still here. I would prefer we go with we've always been here. Right. And that really, to me, refers to everyone. Right. What's gone on for many years, I think, is this understanding like, hey, we have got people who are traditionally disprivileged in our country because of uh, colonialistic and Western European ideologies. Let's see how easily I slip into high liberal. Right. Um, as I call that language pattern um, in the sense that this is this is true. Right. But what is that true inside of the context of the history of humanity? Right? How is that truth recognized along the history of African kings and queens? How is that history recognized across the understanding of what indigenous people did in America, and I should say Americas, for 20, 30,000 years? Right? As far as intentionally building, intentionally creating sustainable ways of living, right? And, and how is that also replicated in other countries, in other communities, right? And ultimately, for me, I've come to understand that it's not about white people, it's not about black people, it's about empires. Um, and I definitely see at this point a new empire being built off the bones of my work and other people's work to create an ideology that whiteness as itself is bad or that there's no um, outcomes for light-skinned people in this world besides um, you know, recognizing their failure to be human which I feel, again, is extremely short-sighted. So um, I'm often uh, engaged in conversations on the internet, engaged in conversations with people, 
expressing these views and talking to people and say, hey, listen, right? What about us talking about the, you know, Italian, Swedish, Finnish, German? What about those cultures, right? What do we talk about? How can we move from a space of negativity almost on a constant basis into a place of positivity, right? And, and why would that be important? What would that do for us? Um, and so I'm going to use this podcast as an opportunity to kind of tell some stories, to, to walk through some racial engagements that I've seen recently, um, to analyze what I see happening in the news, media, and otherwise. So one story, I, you know, I was thinking about recently was this matter of perspective, right? And how often people jump to the incorrect conclusion based off of the reality of lived experience, right? So I was, you know, getting some gas a little bit ago. And um, I, I'm, you know, enjoying myself this afternoon, pumping my gas at the gas station. And, uh, you know, this big old nice fancy car swoops in right behind me. And, you know, uh, I see, a, I see a, you know, I see a white man. And almost at the same amount of time as I, as I recognize that, you know, my car has another person behind me at the gas station, I see uh, a black gentleman getting out of his car as he's pulled up at the gas station um, pump next to me, right? So he's on the other side of the pump, and this white gentleman in a car, in a real nice fancy car is behind me. And the black guy, he gets out of his car, super happy, he just, you could tell he's having a good day. You know what I mean? When, when you see a black man who's having a good day, you, you know, it almost makes you smile, it makes me smile, right? So, you know, I look at that smile at him, he smiles at me, we're just like, look, look at this, we're enjoying our day, right? And uh, as he walks behind my car, uh, the white man who's just pulled up gets startled. I mean, just just no way other to say it, but he was startled, right? Black man has gone in front of his car. He had, was just in, in finishing parking. He He's a little startled. And you can see his car kind of roll back a little bit, like, whoa, what's going on? And this is something really common for black folks, right? That our existence as, as, as it is, can encourage or instill or create dramatic moments just out of nowhere, right? Um, and, and so this man, he jumps out of his car, he starts yelling at this black boy. And I say boy, because he was a young man. And this young man, he's looking at him like, what did I do? And he looks at me and I go, you didn't do anything. <laughs> and, and I'm like, why are you yelling at him? Um, and he's kind of going, hey, get away from my car. Right. And some you know, young man said, I'm, I'm not near, near your car, sir. He goes into the, you know, into the gas station to pay or whatever. And, you know, as the white man is pumping, he's looking around, seeing if anybody has seen what's going on and why he's concerned. So, you know, I'm out of kindness in my heart, interesting, of you know, can't help myself. You know, I say, no, hey, you know, it happens, you know, but it's OK. It's a good day. Right. You know, trying to kind of bring it down a tense, uh, the tensity of this moment. Is there a way I could do that? Um, and we can all go back to enjoying the sunlight on our face and pumping our gas and getting out of here. And this man looks at me and goes, no, no, you saw him. He got really close to my car. And I'm like, no, no, he really didn't. And he looks at me like, you're just openly disagreeing with me in the most friendliest manner possible. And I'm like, that's right. Big old teeth. Here's my big old smile. Nah, I didn't see it like that. You know? Oh, well, you know. And so as he's pumping the gas and I'm finishing my gas, I kind of kind of slow it up because I'm like, man, when this young man comes out of the gas station, he's about to hear it from this man, right? 
And sure enough, he comes back out. He starts walking. He says nothing to this white man, nothing at all. He keeps, keeps headed to his car, and this white man starts yelling at him. Do you know how close you got to my car? Do you understand what you did? And the young brother is like, listen. And he starts, he's like about to bark. He's like, listen, you, you don't, you don't, you know. And, he's, you know, and I look at him, I say to the young man, I said, is it worth your blood pressure? And he goes, no. He goes, no, it's not. And I say, it's really not. Come over here. Come on. Let's laugh about this. This is how it goes, right? And that's part of what it is a lot of times to be, you know, especially a black person who lives particularly in West L.A., which is filled with liberals who think they're really great with race but are absolutely terrible, um, that this is really common, right, that you as a black person will, you know, step up to support another black person. And that's ultimately where I always tell people Black Lives Matter came from, right, was that ultimately we're looking for like a Batman signal, right, that you see the bat – in the bat signal in the air, in the Batman comics and the movies, you know that like Batman is being called on, right? And that Black Lives Matter was supposed to be a call that a black person could say, Black Lives Matter. And if you hear that call, other black people should come or other people who support us, or who can help protect us from these instances, from these engagements, that are a regular occurrence, that that, that would be something that we could have a conversation, you know? And then, of course, we ends up with thousands of white people burning things down. So, you know, popular movements, how they turn. Um, but, you know, in that moment, I was really glad that I had that experience of, of, of saying to this young man, oh, absolutely, you know, you didn't do nothing wrong. You didn't come close to his car. Because from my perspective, where, you know, the white man was in his car, but I was outside of his car. So I could tell that this black gentleman who walked past his car gave his car at least two feet room, right? Uh, and would, for whatever reason, that was not enough room. This man wanted a buffer of many feet, <laughs> uh, even more feet than he was from my car, which is very telling, right? Like, you're going to cl come close to my car, like, I don't matter. And then this young man's going to walk between, and then all of a sudden, oh, we really have a problem, right? Um, and, you know, and so as soon as I started talking to this young man, and, and we started jumping, you know, I said, hey, what's your, what's your name? What's your name? How are you doing? You know, and we just start conversating. You know, this other man who's really upset, he stops yelling. Because we're talking, right? And we're friendly and we're having a good time. And he's like, you know, how do you know each other, right? He's looking at me like, you know him? And I'm like, we all know each other, right? Because that's always my answer, right? It doesn't matter where I am. If you're a black person, we know each other. And the reality is, honestly, if you're African-American and your family has been here for 50 to 100 years or more, most likely we are probably related because there's so few of us left, right? There's so few of us who have... Um, descendant or descendants of slavery in this country, in the sense that after slavery, our population of a percentage of America was, you know, 38 to 35 percent of the United States population. Um, and now we, we, you know, we hover between 10 to 12 percent in most of the U.S. Um, and higher percentages in certain cities. But for the most part, we are not like we used to be, numbers wise, right? Um, and so I thought it was really great time for me to, you know, just be supportive. Right. And just, hey, I see you. I watched it. It happened. Um, and just those matters of perspective that, you know, this person who maybe they just got their car washed, they just bought this new car. They're highly concerned. They're already vigilant about experience. And how does that vigilance then transfer to an engagement of racial discomfort for other people? Right. And, you know, that was one of the things we ended up laughing about. Me and this young black man was like, isn't that so funny that he's so upset with such a rich car, with such a fancy car, and he's so upset. 
And I'm looking at, we look at each other, sorry, we're like, if we had a car like that, we would just be happy. We'd be enjoying the day, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I, I think to myself sometimes about how often those engagements are still happening and still occurring and even perhaps even intensifying because of the conversations of race and gender and sexuality have been done so incorrectly and, and oftentimes just ripped from the hands of black people, just taken, right? Um, and it's, it's really, really common. It's a real big problem, I feel, that we're not talking about. So I, I wanted to take a take an episode to kind of respond a little bit to a conversation I was part of online uh, that was real interesting. It was about the movie Get Out. And if you haven't seen Get Out, you got to see Get Out. Get Out is a seminal work of, of around race and politics. It's a horror movie that's also a comedy, if you ask me. It's absolutely a comedy. Um, and the people in this movie are just exceptional. And I had a fun fun time with this because uh, at, before the movie had begun filming, I ran into one of the actors in the in the movie, and uh, Mr. Whitford is, is how I speak with how I speak of him, and he's a lovely man, Bradley Whitford, and I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple times in various um, circumstances. Once at the White House, where I was like, I have a backpack because of your character on the West Wing. <laughs> like a whole bunch of us wear backpacks at the White House because Josh Lyman did. But anyway, um, you know that this actor from the West Wing has gone on to other lots of other films, and then of course um, is one of the actors that is in the movie called Get Out. And uh, I had spoken with him at the White House actually about you know, and he was saying you know. I hope you like my next movie because I'm really nervous about it. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, it's like a movie with black people. And, you know, I'm just really trying to be supportive. And, you know, I hope, but, you know, it could be read wrong. And I was like, oh, I'm sure it's going to be great. I was like, you know, you're such a really strong, like, ally and you're really interested in supporting folks. I just don't see you taking a really huge misstep. Um, so, you know, I keep an eye out for it. And then, you know, it turns out to be this movie called Get Out. And I'm like, ah, you did it. <laughs> I was like, that's the motherfucker. <laughs> that's a, I was like, that's some shit, right? Like, as far as being stepping up as with your whiteness, stepping up with who you are as an actor to be engaged in this conversation around race in a way that could really upset some black folks, really upset some white people, really upset people in general to have this conversation. Um, and you know, especially to be in a role where you ultimately may be engaged with terrorizing black people. Yeah, I can see why you as a white actor would be like, hey, I'm a little worried how this could be perceived. But ultimately, I think a lot of black people are really appreciative that white people had been part of this um, production led by a black man, right? Led by Jordan Peele as a director and writer and, the, and producer, and that this is something that is really great to see. Right. And, and subsequently, we've seen, you know, further works from Jordan Peele and other stuff continue to percolate, continue to be part of, you know, American consciousness. Uh, but Get Out is really special. Right. It's, it's really special. And uh, it's a it's a it's a really fantastic piece of art, piece of writing, piece of comedy. It has everything going for it. It's a little scary, but it's definitely worth the watch. Um, so I uh, was part of a conversation, you know, earlier today, actually where somebody had brought into a, a social media group that I was part of and, and and they said, you know, Hey, look at, you know, how this movie is described and how, you know, this doesn't really mean how people traditionally describe films, right? It doesn't really go into some of the details. It's kind of basic. It's like, Hey, a black man goes to meet his white girlfriend's family and you know, the, you know, there's tensions that are happening that, or under the surface, eventually reach a boiling point, something like that, right? I'm not going to give you a direct quote, but very similar to that. 
um, and that it's a really limited view of what happens in the movie, and that this, from this person's perspective, this poster's perspective was, hey, like, this is what I want to see more often um, in the industry, that they are, you know, recognizing that there's context there for people that might exist. Um, and essentially what I kind of read from that was that there's a context for you as a black person in this world that you recognize instantly um, of black man takes white, you know, goes to white girlfriend's family. Like that's a whole story. We've seen that millions of times. Um, and mostly we've seen that in our real lives, right? Not in movies, right? There's a few very famous, you know, guests who's coming to dinner and a couple other instances of, of these things of something borrowed with, that Simon was fairly good, um, but sometimes it gets hot. Sometimes it could be real cute. Um, the storyline, but for the most part, like you don't actually see this phenomenon that often. And part of the reason why I think that's true is that black people and white people do not date at the rates that you often see, um, like celebrities engage um, in marrying white people or people who are engaged um, in politics or media, like myself, who has also been married to a white person, now divorced. But gotta admit. I tasted that. I, I know what that bowl looks like, uh, or I should say that glass of white milk. Um, so there's a lot of people who don't, I don't think, realize that, right? That they live in the world as white people with no context of blackness. And because they have no context of blackness, they don't even know that they don't know, right? Which is often amusing to black people, right? Because we know, and we have these contacts, and we understand, and may nobody really jumping out of their skin to be like, here's it is, like A through Z, which you don't understand, right? And I don't often do that because I am aware that humans remember nothing. Or that, like, say if I have a conversation with you today, your ability to remember that conversation next week will be really strong. Your ability to remember that conversation next month will be decreased. Your ability to remember that conversation word for word next year will no longer exist, right? Whereas for me, it'll all be there, right? Um, maybe not word for word what you say, because again, it's autobiographical, so I remember what I say. <laughs> uh, not necessarily what everybody else is doing um, up to a point, right? But it's very interesting at times that there is this missing understanding of context. That if a person who you perceive to be black is posting something about something black, there's an instantaneous decision by white folks, often again, I really do see this as very popular within white liberal spaces or people who identify themselves as Democrats to instantly engage in that conversation, professing a knowledge base of context they don't possess, right? Like I know what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna get in this conversation because I know about like this field. Let's say it's a field of screenwriting or a field of film production or a field of directing, right? And so because I am an expert in this thing, I will be an expert in all the ways that this could be done, including when a black person does it. Um, and and the, to the point where I'm seeing a lot of writers discussing like how to diversify, how to make sure that they're meeting sensitivity readers' needs. And these are white men who are like, I'm, this is how I'm doing it. I'm writing female characters. I'm writing people of color characters. And it's never even crossing their minds that it would be so much better for black folks, so much better for people of color and for women of color, for them to sit their butts down and let a woman of color write her own story, right? Let a black person write their own story. But it's much more uh, this age and this era for white people to sh jump up and say, here I am, ready to articulate for you, right? 
Um, and it, it, it's the biggest reason why I don't really spend time in those circles as much as I can up until a point, right? Because I'm so over that. Um, and, you know, in the sense that my who I am, I'm ready to represent. Who I am, I'm ready to write down. Who I am has already been spoken by me that in a way that I don't see necessary for someone to lift now and to make it appropriate for quote unquote white audiences or, well, let me make sure you understand how this really works, right? Um, and ultimately that's why I think we're seeing this real big failures within media, entertainment and film um, to make content that is, is impactful for communities, right? We're just doing it over again. You know, you can have Avatar come out one year Maybe 10, 15, 13 years ago, it can come out and have a whole bunch of criticisms from Native and Black people and, and, and people of color. And, you know, 10 years later, it can come out and it can do the whole thing over again. Um, and this time, they're going to give us about five or 10 more people of color actors within a cast of 30. Um, and we're supposed to be happy with that, right? We're going we're gonna to ignore the use of Black hairstyles from 1960s do up to dreadlocks um, across the use of blue people because, um, you know, hey, it's a story for everyone, right? And, and what that's not saying, again, is how often do you see dreadlocks in a movie directed by black people about black people? Not as often as you'd like, right? How often do you see 60s doo-wop hairstyles on uh, black women, black children, brown folks, you know, people who are of color um, who get to speak for themselves? Oh, never, right? But what we're going to have is a billion-dollar movie with blue people uh, professing and utilizing those key notes of, of culture, right? Um, and part of the reason why I think those things are so popular is that many people are um, have internalized racism, right? Whether they're black, brown, native, uh, whether they're indigenous, whether they're, they're not, a lot of folks who are living in America have been socialized into a structure of discussing and understanding race in a way that doesn't benefit them, right? That's, that's really what it comes down to. So as we continue to see these this evolution of huge amounts of diversity conversations, we're seeing uh, a, a decrease in black birth. We're seeing a decrease, an increase in black death. Uh, the population of African-Americans, simply put, is becoming smaller in the United States at the very same time that all these conversations are increasing, right? So we have an inverse reality, right? An inverse relationship to success for black people. And as much folks are talking about blackness and engaging in blackness and utilizing blackness leads to decreased opportunities for black people, right? And what's the key part? Unless black people are involved in these conversations, unless black people lead these movies, lead these entertainment pieces, they are um, a, a shadow of comparison, right? And their context is is irrefutably diluted and almost difficult now to to contextualize. Right? That won't make sense. It doesn't feel good, right? Um, and so you see this. You see this huge difference between the works of uh, a master like Spike Lee. Right. Um, and if you haven't seen things like school days, please watch it. Right. But the most seminal thing that I, I try to have my kid watch every so many years is Malcolm X, um, because it, it's such an amazing piece of art. And it's so filled to the brim with black history from, you know, the 30s and 40s and, and, and doo-wop and, and, and swing and just going all the way to the 60s. All this stuff is every single era is like represented 
um, inside this film for like a hundred years of blackness almost, right? Of, of black experience, of black terror, of the things that were experienced by a lot of folks um, during the time periods of, of the reign of terror in the South and in the North. So I think it's really one of those things where I, you know, for myself, I went to myself, well, why is a lack of context or a lack of, you know, detail specifically uh, helpful? Yeah, um, I think if you look at a movie like Get Out, it looks like it's going to be this story, and it turns out to be a different one, right? Um, and I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen the film, because I think it's such a great reveal. It's one of the best ones I've seen in the history of film, um, you know, and it's amazing thing if you get to see black if you're black and you get to watch get out in a black audience that is the best like, you ever have because this moment these moments are like so culturally relevant um to our lived experience especially for if you're a black person who's ever engaged in predominantly white places right where you go to a school that's mostly white folks or mostly not black people right you go to you work in a business with mostly white people or mostly not black folks right you live in a world wherever you live that doesn't have that, then this is a movie for you, right? You will recognize every aspect of what's happening for this person because that lived experience is like really specific. Um, and a lot of folks don't have like a, just one type of blackness, right? Um, as far as where they, you know, hey, when I'm here these, with these people, you, you know, you're gonna hear me maybe different, right? And I've, I've had that experience where I've had white people I've accidentally called, you know, I pocket dial you and, and you hear me and I'm in, you know, Compton, I'm in Watts and you like, I couldn't even understand you. That's what they, I've had people say, like, I, I heard you talking, but it was like a totally different voice. I've never heard you speak like that. And I said, well, yeah, why would I talk to you, a white person like that? Like, that would be weird to me because you wouldn't be able to understand me, right? Where if I go into a black space, then I'm going to talk differently because I want to be understood. Right, and this kind of transfers to like when I'm working in England, all of a sudden it's like, where's the lorry? Like, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm an infinite kind of code switcher in space and in and, and culture. But I definitely think that there's such a hidden world for white people that um, now is being taken by people who, in another generation, might be called race traders, flat out, frankly, right? People who take blackness um, and leave black people hanging. Thinking about that Bel Air story I heard recently of a young black man who, you know, spoke with the press about his experience of helping his friend, somebody he thought he was his friend, with a YouTube, uh, a, a web series, um, and an, a parody of of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and he was a big part of this show, and then he come, came out to Los Angeles to help his friend get going with it. He's playing a lot of different roles, he's contributing a bunch, but he doesn't have a contract. He has no paper. And ultimately, he's being told, no, yeah, we're not going to pay you for anything. We're not going to cover your costs for coming out to Los Angeles to help us. Um, sorry, but there's there's only, you know, right. Um, and this is just really how it works. And to the point that I would articulate that any successful black person in Hollywood or film, besides a very few, and most of them are older, that many of the black people who are very successful, you see, are stabbing black people in real life in the back, right? That we as black people know the stories of what's real, right? That there are gonna be folks, and again, there's some people who are shining at examples of doing it different. Well, you know, Alfred Woodard, God bless you, you know, she's she's done a great amount of work. She's a person who is also, you know, married to a non-black person, but look at her utilizing, you know, she said, this is my love, and my love also includes making sure that black women have space, that black women, 
have a place, right? So she hosts an event every year. Um, I believe she still does to, around the Academy Awards and brings black women into space and has space for them to meet each other, to engage with each other, right? Very, there's not really happening that every black person in the world is doing that. I'm looking at you, Oprah, right? <laughs> Me and Oprah have like this history. We, we just go through it because I, I talk about it sometimes. But um, like I grew up in San Luis Obispo. I was like black as black to begin with. There's just not that many black people in San Luis Obispo. And then I was also raised in a white home, right? So I was raised in a home where my mother was black and she was married to a white person. And then my dad is also black and he's also married to a white person, right? What are the odds? Um, and so for me personally, I grew up in a space that's very different than a lot of African-Americans um, in the sense that my home was not one race. and I didn't have like the comfort of blackness when I returned. You know, I did have my mother and my mother was very strongly black, especially in San Luis Obispo. She was, you know, keen on me having African-American experiences, making sure that my culture was recognized and celebrated. Um, and so I have to give her a lot of credit for making sure that that was like always on the table that, you know, we always were going to bring up Black History Month. There was always going to be something that I was doing around blackness so that I wasn't going to come up without an understanding of who I was and where I came from, even if I'm living in slow. Um, and so at one point, you know, we heard the news as I was a kid that Oprah, very big person in the 80s and 90s is with her television show that she had, she bought a she bought a home kind of close to San Luis Obispo, not, not terribly close, but close to a place called Santa Barbara, which is a couple hours away drive. Um, and then shortly after the, the news on the black find, so to speak, of the great find of black folks in San Luis Obispo was that Oprah was coming up to get some sandwiches from a really great sandwich place called Brubeck's. It was also a jazz cafe and also had these really amazing sandwiches, uh, really very good sandwiches um, and, and salads and such. Um, and so the, the people were like, listen, if you catch her at Brubeck's, you might be able to say hi or whatever. And ain't nobody been able to say hi to her, right? Like everybody in my church, nobody's seen her. It was always like, have you seen her? Like nobody saw her, right? And nobody really did. Like the whole time that she's lived in Santa Barbara for the most part, never met with any black folks, never done any black nothing. It's like we don't actually exist <laughs> to this particular African-American superstar in media. Um, and, and that was my experience because I, you know, being me and, not forgetting things, I carefully developed a tracking pattern to figure out how I could be outside of Brubex maybe four to six days a week for about six months because I figured, you know, dedicate the time, see what I can do. And, you know, I'm nine, ten years old. So what am I thinking? I'm just like, I'm just feeling like maybe, or maybe I was like 11, 12, right? So I'm like, I just feel like maybe I can meet her or somebody like this and, you know, just keep on trying, right? Couple, you know, oh, I don't see her, so... Maybe she's doing something, and I'll just wait and just randomly stop by the sandwich place and just stand out there waiting for Oprah, right? I will admit, in the mid-90s and, like, stuff, there wasn't a ton of stuff to do in San Luis Obispo, so I could spend my summers like this, um, you know, chasing Oprah. Um, and eventually, a big old car pulled up, and I, I was on my bike, and I'm, my eyes are all wide, like, oh, I think this is her. And, and somebody gets out of the car to go inside and a little window, you know, window, the window of the car, this limo, almost like a limo, it was kind of basically a small limo, I think. Um, it rolls down. I can kind of see, oh, that's Oprah. There's Oprah inside of this car. And I'm standing there and I'm telling you, if you look around, me and this car, we're the only two quote unquote black people in this area for maybe, there's like 
five miles. There's no black people in San Francisco, at least when I was a kid. It was a really, really small amount of black folks, right? Like in my class, there was like three black people of graduating from my school of like 300, like 1%, right? We did not have a lot of black folks. So, so much so that like, if you were black and like you came off the freeway at San Luis Obispo and you saw me, because sometimes I would stay on the freeway and just like hoping somebody would take me out of this town. And so I would see people and they roll down the window and say, hey, where can I get something to eat? And I'd say, keep on going. This is not a town for us. <laughs> and they should roll up their window real fast so they can get the hell out of there. And so I'd be like, I warn thee, do not stop. Blackness not respected. Um, but it was it was like trying to be like warning black people, like, yo, like keep on going, go to Tascatero, go back down to Pismo, you know, in the sense that, and then also San Luis Pismo has this, you know, quirk in the sense that they really want people to come and be in their city and et cetera. So there's no drive-throughs in the whole city. Not a single drive-through. Everybody has to get out of their car. You know, so if you're going, you want to stop and get something to eat, you got to go into the restaurant, you got to get your food, bring it back out to your car and drive away. There's not a single drive through and hasn't been for you know, 30 years. Um, and so I, I was thinking to myself, man, you know, how interesting is this, you know, that I've, I've, I'm on my bike outside, I'm looking at you, Oprah, you're looking at me, maybe, or maybe you don't see me, maybe you're busy, maybe you're on a phone call or you know, you know, one of the big old bulky phones or something like that. Um, you know, what's going on? But, you know, car pulled away and, you know, the driver's like, get out of my way. And I'm like, well, okay, I have to move my bike because it's, it's that bad. Like, you're really just going to ignore me, little black girl. I'm going to, I'm just, okay. And I just recognized that moment of like, so different from every other black person I ever ran into, right? Any other black person I ran into from like 1980 to 2000 to even today, for the most part, they see a young black person. It's like, hey, how you doing? I hope you're having a good day. You could be successful. I mean, I'm telling you, like, from Rosa Parks, who was like, stay in school, definitely don't do activism. When I was like 10, she was like, please don't. I was like, okay. Uh, but obviously, it took some time to listen to her. And, you know, there were other black people who I had seen when I was a young person. And Forrest Whitaker was so amazing to me. Like, I talked to him about film from when I was like 11, 12 years old. I run into him at a spot in at Dorsey High, I had a little event called African Market in Los Angeles, where a lot of black folks would show up and he would come through and you know, shake hands with the young people, wouldn't do photos, but, you know, it was very like, how are you doing? What are you into? So I would tell them, hey, I'm trying to go to school here, and this one, no. And then even when I ended up going to UCLA, he was like, oh, you're at UCLA. I ran into him. I was like, I'm at UCLA. He's like, wow, you really did what you said. And I was like, wow, you remember. And so that was one of the cool things for me with having a member I do is I would meet people in the black community who had made something of themselves, who also had better memories, who would be like, I remember you. I'm really glad to see you keep going, right? And just that small moment of positivity was like really like, oh, special, right? Um, and so I'm only, I'm only going to talk about two out of the three Oprah times because there's another time that we could say that. <laughs> but the second Oprah time, you know, years after that, get, you know, bike out of the way of Oprah's car um, situation in San Luis Obispo, um, I was, you know, I was in a different life space. I was married. Um, I, was, I was trying to lose weight. Um, and so I was looking for places where I could swim and that had good pools that I could get into and it would allow me to swim and get some exercise in um, and, and carry on with my life. And so I ended up at a place called Equinox, which is a kind of upscale gym, <laughs> not filled to the brim with black people again. Um, but I thought, OK, well, let me go 
and check out their Equinox. It's got a pool, got people I know who really like this pool, who are like, it's a really good pool. And so I, I go on a tour, and um, as we're approaching the pool area, we see a little bit across the pool from us, um, there are some black people in chairs, and there's a, a camera, and there's a film crew, and they go, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we have to kind of stay over here on this side. We can't take you over to the other side because Oprah's over there filming. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, I'm not going to say hi to Oprah. I have nothing to say to Oprah after all the things, right? <laughs> I was just like, okay, cool, great for you. Oprah's here filming something. That I'm, you know, on a tour trying to make sure, like, I wanted to, you know, basically go and fill the water um, and see, like, what that temperature was like. Is it going to be comfortable? Like, just get an idea of, like, how deep the pool is, how often is it open, you know, the, the things you're looking for in a pool if, you, if you're going to try to rent some time, right? Um, and so as I approach the pool, I'm, you know, literally going to go, Put my hand in the water. Um, I see this person over across the pool start waving at me, and they get up out of their chair and start going, you know, making this motion of "get out, stop, stop, stop." And I'm looking at them like, "What do you mean stop?" And I realize that the person who's making this motion of "stop and get away" is Oprah. Again, with me as a black person named Faith Cheltenham, who can't remember, can't forget a single thing except for the things I choose not to remember. Right? <laughs> um, so I'm like. I see you again doing this. Wow. And I just look at her and I just give her this, cut it out. <laughs> and she looks at me like, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. And I said to her, I yell across, Oprah, I ain't here for you. Because, <laughs> you know, I can't help myself. I'm sick of this at this point. You know, I get it. You're Oprah. Probably everybody in the whole world wants to see you. But we've already run into each other besides you without you knowing. <laughs> um, and I wasn't. You know, I was disappointed as a kid, and I have a tendency to maintain my disappointments over time. Um, and so I was just so like, you're so annoying, Oprah, in the sense of like any person who comes around must be like really trying to meet you, right? No, not me, not Faith Cheltenham. Thanks. Um, and so, you know, it's just been very interesting to me that we have people who are then perceived like Oprah to be huge supporters of the black community, right? To be super engaged in blackness. When, if you live in California and you live near Santa Barbara, you won't have seen anything from Oprah for white people to this day, right? You won't have seen anything from large, you know, very successful African-American people and black creators in the world for all the rest of us who are black, who live in the same world. In part because, you know, we talk about something called crabs in the barrel, Right, that because the, the there's such a lack of resources for Black folks and African Americans that anybody who's you know like all of us are little crabs in a barrel, and the person who first gets out and climbs out, they're not going to go back to the barrel because they could fall back in, right? And so the idea is that there's really not going to be a lot of support from people who have been successful. Again, there's some people who really turn that on their head, right? Lena Waite done a whole bunch of stuff. I've seen her, you know, acting out there, trying to engage more folks, especially Black LGBT, especially, you know, creators. Um, Ava DuVernay, I've, I've, I've seen absolutely trying to engage and uplift uh, Black folks in, in space. Um, you know, Spike Lee, absolutely, right? I mean, there's a bunch of folks who have been in the business who are interested in seeing Black business continue, right? Uh, it's just one of those things that I've noticed that oftentimes the folks that are most successful within white space or white or traditional media are often people who are, are not known by black people to be supportive and hooking us up, right? I mean, again, a whole bunch of people who are not like that, right? I mean, you know, 
I've had Samuel L. Jackson give me deals, or if I could try to pull them together with something, it's like, I'll give you a deal as a black person, right? There's that, that will happen if you're trying to get a black star to do a black panel at comic cons or things like that you will be able to try to get some negotiation if it's about us for us for people like us right um and to share that with the larger world of what our experience really is like and what it's been like right so there's so many people out there who i really do want to you know say you're really great thank you so much for doing so um it's just these days i see a lot of attention and support given to creators and folks who aren't like that Right. And who are intentionally going, hey, I want to hire diversely, but hiring diversely doesn't mean black diversity. It don't mean like a black person who grew up in slow like me, plus a black person who's native, plus a black person who is this, plus a black person who's that. Right. The concept of black diversity is falling by the wayside. Right. And so I you know, always like to say, hey, blackness is not a monolith. Right. We're not all the same type of black. And then why aren't we seeing that? Right. Because I sure as see as heck see us get shot to death. Right. You got a black skateboarder who dies. Right. A black person who dances, who dies. You see a black person going through things from all these different types of experience. Right. And that's our lived experience of life, that we are different types of people doing different types of things. But then I'm going to turn around and see a TV show where we're all preppies. Right. Where we're all coming into, you know, dealing with our blackness against the backdrop of 18th century European society. What? I'm so sick of that. I'm like, I'm sorry. Stop doing it. Um, and I do think it's because there's these cutthroat people who have stabbed so many black people in the back, like Shonda Rhimes, right? Her story years ago about Shonda not being supportive of a black creator who had been part of a show called Soul Food, who was really trying to still make it. And she's even being told by the studios and by the network, now nah, we, we have this new black person we'll be going with, right? And whether or not Shonda you know, knows all that, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that there's not been the same type of support, especially for black men, especially for black masculine, and particularly for black non-binary people, right? That there is a real, real heavy emphasis on supporting black women alone at times within industry, within entertainment. Um, and, and that you will see people go, why are you gonna speak on a black woman? But they sure don't have a problem talking about Mr. Isaiah Washington or other black men who are brilliant, who are bold, who use their mouth, who love to be, you know, outspoken, right? Uh, by the way, Mr. Isaiah Washington is a director now, but who knew? Amazing, amazing director. I mean, one of the best indie films I've seen in years, uh, was Corsicana or something like this on Amazon Prime. You get a chance to follow him, Mr. Isaiah Washington, brilliant, brilliant stuff here. Um, and often most folks are being canceled, right? Especially black men, right? You don't, I don't really see that many black women getting canceled. Hmm? Anybody notice that? Um, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that's in part because there's these structures that are engaged in the world that we don't really recognize, that we don't necessarily see and contextualize. Um, and, and that's all the very long answer there for for someone who was like, tell me more about, which is always a mistake with me, right? I'd love to tell you more. Um, I do. I really, I thought, gosh, I, I, I got to talk about this, right? We have to discuss the context scenario, right? And why it's so difficult for us to see each other. And part of it's like, hey, ask the questions. If you're a white person, how many black friends do you have? Say you have 50 friends you talk to every year. How many of them are black? How often are you going out and speaking to black people? How often do you go to black restaurants? 
how often do you engage inside of African-American culture at all? And many times the answer is no. Well, I have a, there's a black person who we know, right, which is a way of saying, there's a black person who comes into our white world and acts white with us, okay? No, no offense. I mean, I would know more, more than almost anybody you'll ever meet, <laughs> right? Uh, as far as how to engage in white spaces from, you know, royalty to uh, rednecks, I'm, I'm, I'm down, you know? And, and that's in part because I came up in San Luis Obispo the way I did, having, you know, real uh, amazing access to education and, and really huge access to, to where I came from, because I had a history of my people that was present and real and lived, right? Um, and the fact that I'm also West Indian. And so being Black West Indian makes me have access spaces that are, are immigrant race just as much as I have access spaces that come from being a descendant of slaves, right? Um, and then also in my family, I'm also indigenous in that my I have had family members. My grandmother was an enrolled tribal member and um, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Cree are my indigenous backgrounds. Um, and I don't claim to be an indigenous person, right, who's enrolled, who has the legal and political responsibilities and ramifications, right? I am a black person who has indigenous ancestry, which I do feel definitely does make my black experience in America different um, and in some ways more robust and more alive and diverse. You know, the things that I hear in the wind and the ways that I treat animals and the ways that I experience life, I feel are very much influenced um, by the indigeneity of my black um, ancestry, extended family, even things we didn't necessarily know. Like I was seeing somebody in like an indigenous space be like, hey, here's how we make eggs with, uh, you know, these big old onions and green onions. I was like, yo, that's how we make it. And I realized like I really don't see that many black people kind of understanding and knowing how much has cross pollinated between our two communities um, because we've been here the longest in the sense that black folks were brought here very early on. Right, African slaves were brought here early 1500s, first by the Spanish, which is often uh, not discussed because the black folks who were brought by the Spanish revolted and killed all of them. So I guess they were like, keep that to yourself right now. Um, but that <laughs> did happen at one point where there was a successful slave rebellion here in the United States. Um, and then eventually that those rebellions were really often put down and very harshly responded to. So they stopped happening. But there were definitely black folks who were here who then began to, to mix with the native people who are on uh, in the American continent, right? Um, and one of the things, places I think that's happening a lot is basically a period from like probably about 1750, maybe 1800, all the way to, you know, 1920, where we have um, a lot of folks who are escaping slavery are able to make it west and if you're able to make it past a certain point basically past the mississippi past a certain point you're able to basically be free because those territories do not recognize the united states government or do not recognize slavery um, there's still the chance of being uh, slave napped or having your owner come and find you and have people set upon returning you to slavery that's still you know an issue but there's a bunch of black cowboys and a bunch of history of, of black cowboy and black people in the West that I think is super deserving of, of more exploration and more study um, and more celebration.
right, that there was this history of black people engaging with natives, especially folks like Harriet Tubman, who um, is spoken about and historians identify as having native relationships, learning about um, native plants and native medicines, the point that she brought that information back to the Union when she was a commander in the Civil, in the Civil War, and she was a native commander by Lincoln, and is one of the first women to hold that rank in the United States military, and then um, also one of the first black women to do so, and also one of the first black people to do so. So, so Harriet was extremely unusual um, and, and you know, brilliant role, uh, person in black American history. But I do think a lot of times people are missing that she had this strong um, relationship with indigenous communities. So that was one of the, some of the things I was thinking about, you know, when I initially was uh, wondering about how do we draw really specific attention to black and indigenous people of color, right? That black and indigenous people are people of color, but we're black and indigenous, right? Which means that our experience is often very different from an immigrant who comes to America who is Latino, who is Indian or South Asian, who is Asian, people who are coming to this country who are accessing, quote unquote, an American dream, who are drawn because they literally hear there's an American dream that they can access that's for immigrants. That's not the BIPOC story, right? And so when you see BIPOC used to mean black, indigenous, and people of color, they're definitely screwing up what I intended, right? Um, it's also true that it was a bit of a experiment, which I like to run, unbeknownst to the normals that exist in my timeline, but I was also using the term BIPOC to mean by people of color. And that's initially, you know, kind of the idea was by people of color, BIPOC. And then I also thought use it at the same time to mean black and indigenous people of color. Feeling like it was very likely that there's an interplay between LGBT people of color, especially by people and pan folks and fluid people that it directly um, is liberated, lifted, integrated, somehow engaged with by a larger majority POC culture. Um, and sure enough, by 2016, I had been approached by an indigenous leader um, who I had been speaking to about supporting Standing Rock and how black folks could be you know, really supportive of what indigenous uh, leadership was doing there. And this you know, person was like, listen, I know you use this both ways, but we don't, we don't want to see that no more. We just want this to be black and indigenous. And I was like, well, listen, I'll donate it. You know, it's my term. Cause you know me, I'm like, it's mine, right? Nobody else uses it. <laughs> um, so I'll just give it to y'all. <laughs> what do bi people need anyway? Um, in the sense that, you know, for the most part, yes, bi people of color are still in need of very specific services and very specific realities that they do not experience that their white bisexual counterparts do or that their non-bi people of color peers also don't experience, right? But at the same time, as far as something that's going to push the idea for bi people of color of autonomy, respect, dignity, that I believe the term being exclusively for black and indigenous people of color use would be a, a, a way to accomplish that ultimate goal, right? Um, and then again, nobody else remembers anything, so who cares? <laughs> um, at the same time, it ultimately led to like nobody remembering that path, nobody seeing that trail of history of engagement of you know, especially the fact that there was an LGBT camp at Standing Rock that was really lively, that had a whole bunch of folks there, that the Two Spirit movement was in, 
emboldened and encouraged and celebrated so much more at Standing Rock and after that we really started to see um, a pride awareness, that we started to see rules changing around who can engage in dance, and that we started to see people really accepting that there are sacred beings on this earth that God is blessed to be different in their sex or in their gender or in how they approach the world, right? Um, so for me, that's what that term meant. That's what that context is. And um, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully bringing some folks in into this podcast who can talk with me about, about that, because I definitely think that if you are a black person who also has indigenous background in this country, you're often not fitting in exactly right, quote unquote, with blackness, right? But you want to start bouncing around to some different type of music, you know, what's up, Stan? Uh, <laughs> there's some like real cool people out there in indigenous rap. You're like, yo, um, or you're, you have an affinity like I've had with a, a dear friend from, from elementary school who, you know, me and her were like, it was us from the beginning, you know? Um, and there was, in San Luis Pesto, there was nobody else, and she was fighting from get. And I remember, like, it was like kindergarten, first grade, and they was trying to put the headdresses on, and she was like, no! And I stood up with her, like, absolutely not. And, I was, and then she, I was like, you have to explain to me why this is wrong. <laughs> but I'm gonna be with you. Black people are against this. And anytime I would jump up, and you know, the teacher would be like, oh, it's faith again, right? Oh, she comes about the racism. And, you know, I was on that tip since basically kindergarten, which made me extremely popular. Um, not at all. But I was very much in people's faces, like, you will not say this. And I wanted to be supportive of my friend and understand, you know, what's wrong. And I said, oh, my goodness. And she said, this is religious. This is, like, important. So this is our ancestors. I was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> like, dear God, this is terrible. What are they doing? And, you know, so we were really active in trying to, to demand that our cultures be treated with respect, demand that people see our stories in, in reality and truth. And so I learned really on, early on as a kid from my friend um, growing up in, in San Luis Obispo that, yeah, this Thanksgiving story is definitely not how, this, how it actually went, right? That all these things that were being taught didn't, you know, go the way that, they, that I expected. Um, and I think that's really important because from my perspective, I'm not really wanting to go all the way to the other side and just be like, let's always talk about every bad thing a white person did. Because if you, again, if you look at a history and the history of histories and we stretch everything out, there's very few cultures that have no oppression in their background or have no difficulty with other humans at all. Um, and so I do think it's a very short-sighted and it's very much being driven by a lot of these people who are accessing privilege who are accessing wealth, who are increasing what's theirs by telling a story that's not for everyone, right? That doesn't necessarily represent me. Um, and so I was really, you know, kind of drawn to having that thought process, especially, you know, in recognition of, of Get Out and also of this um, African screenwriter who I, I was talking to was also wondering about, you know, do people see this? That's really what I got from, from his comments was do people really understand that there's a context that we carry inherently with us um, that they could also really be leveraging, right? I think that's another way to look at it is that there's this, this hidden knowledge, this, this wealth of understanding that if you're able to hire black writers, if you're um, engaged with black people, you can really bring that into your productions in a way that will be extremely successful. Right. Um, but is it very successful when, you know, it's just dress up, right? When it's 
the blue skin with the black dreadlocks speaking the native language <laughs> wearing the tattoos that look like they're from Polynesia you know I mean it's like that's to me diversity done extremely wrong and I understand the intent though right and I get that the idea and the hope is different than what the outcome looks like right um, and but I ultimately want to see that people really understand that when we talk about um, BIPOC right we're talking about black people we're talking about indigenous people Right. We're also talking about folks like me who are black and indigenous. Right. And, you know, also honoring people who come into space who are by people of color. Right. Because of the, the, the history of the term. That's what the intention of it is. And then also it's created by Faith Cheltenham, who is today a black LGBT conservative. So, you know, hey, you feel free to credit me. Right. It's helping to popularize this. Um, and, and my thing is. I never wanted credit, uh, and I still, you know, I'm, I feel fairly uncomfortable with, with things like this. It's just in the sense of me remembering that nobody else was using this thing except for me, and then everybody started using it, and now they're using it badly. I feel like I, I must, you know, kind of, hello, I would say wave a flag, but that's a different story. So you have a wonderful day, and thank you again. Um, I'm wearing my Black Heroes Matter t-shirt, which was given to me as part of being a panel at New York Comic Con on black folks and genre and comics and a great guy named Uraeus who, um, who has started this concept. He said, Here, here's a t-shirt, but I need you to like not be like caught in a protest. Cause I like, I heard you like protest. I was like, it's true. I have been known to protest. And so he was like, so I'm gonna give you this shirt, but like, you could just like not protesting it. Cause it's like, really, we're trying to make this about like black creators, like getting hired and getting more jobs. And like, it's not a protest t-shirt. Right. And I was like, for sure. And I was like, if you realize that means I can almost never wear this <laughs> because I live in L.A. And if I go outside the door, I'm about to protest like it's about the realness with anti-blackness in my city. Um, and he was like, respect. But <laughs> I was like, OK. And sure enough, as soon as the panel ended, I took the T-shirt off. He saw me. He's like, I told you I was like, I'm about to walk out of here and my black LGBT femme self has to be prepared. And he was like, I understand this. I, I realize this. Right. And that, you know, so I'm, I'm wearing it now while I'm doing this podcast, and then I'm going to take it off because I might leave the house, and you never know what might happen <laughs> because I live in a space where people don't see black people all the time as being where they respect, don't necessarily identify and dignify my existence, and at times get a little touchy about me or other black people even coming within several feet of their car. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward more to having and sharing that experience and, and t talking about that, right? Um, because it, it's something that at this point, I feel hopefully people are recognizing that the current structures that have been created to discuss racism, diversity, and inclusion aren't working the way people thought they would. And they're not leading to more content, more success, more realizing the dream for black folks, right? What they are leading to is Many more white men directing films featuring our featuring our people. God love you, Ben Affleck, but I see you. <laughs> like, you know, so it is like you know maybe that's good. Maybe that's maybe that you know some we can have somebody articulate a different position that that's a good thing for black people that we're constantly being having our culture being uplifted and our stories are uplifted by folks who aren't us. But I I still want to put it out there that being able to see black things from black perspectives, including black people who are biracial, like Jordan Peele and the movie Get Out are extremely powerful. And that our 
unique perspectives have the ability to change the world for everyone's better, right? That if you get a chance to celebrate black history, which I don't think you should just do in one month, I think you should do it all the time, right? That if you live someplace that black folks have helped build and helped support, you know, if you live someplace else where those cultures have done that, that's what it should be about, right? That to me is what it means to be an American, is to celebrate who we've been and also who, are be who we became, right? And that we're not done with that. Let's let's keep on let's keep on building. Thanks for listening.